When you're trying to build a new product, sell the product first, the idea, the vision of the product, refine that. And if people actually want to buy it, then go build it and sell it after that, right? So it was sell, build, sell. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Zero to Exit. This is Ankur and Nalima, your hosts. In today's show, we're delighted to have with us Amitabh Sinha, co-founder and CEO of WorkSpot, a cloud-native SaaS platform for virtual desktops. Prior to WorkSpot, Amitabh ran the desktop and apps business at Citrix, where he was largely responsible for turning it into the multi-billion dollar juggernaut that it is today. Amitabh also co-founded EveryPath, a mobile task automation software company back in 98, before mobile was a thing. As an entrepreneur, if you're unsure whether you are too early or too late for the market, you don't want to miss this episode. Hi, Amitabh. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ankur. Hi, Nilama. It's great to have you. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I want to kick things off uh, by asking you, you know, you, you, you're all about virtualization. You, you've spent a, at least two decades in that business. How's kind of the whole virtual and remote work been working out for you and your teams? And do you have any survival hacks for our listeners? You know, we sent everyone home here and in Hyderabad in India in the first week of March. Nobody's gone to back to the office yet. And I don't think we're all going back till the vaccinations are all done, right? So probably not till the summer. You know, all our customers um, who use us for working from remote locations are doing the same things, right? And uh, we have lots of stories from customers basically saying, hey, your team is helping us, keeping us safe and productive at the same time. It's tough. I mean, I think all of us are really realizing there's no more hallway conversations, right? Like everything has to be a meeting. People are pretty zoomed out right now. Was there any impact on the sales initially? Yeah, we had. I think we grew by 50% sort of as a company in one month in March last year. Amazing. Um, so there's just a, a big bump up in the March quarter because every single one of our customers pretty much doubled in the month of March. Awesome. So we'll start with your founder journey. You co-founded EveryPath in 1998 for mobile task automation. This was even before mobile was even a thing. Tell us how the idea came about. So this was one of our, uh, we had four co-founders and one of them uh, was in Yosemite, I think, and looking for apartments there. This was when the browser was fairly new, uh, mobile barely existed. Uh, he basically said, I wish I had the same tools I had on the browser on my phone so I could go look up the nearby hotels, do price comparisons and pick the right thing to do. And so we got the company started back in, I think it was late 98. And it was before, uh, I mean, most people probably don't remember this. There was this protocol called WAP, Wireless Access Protocol, back in 99, 2000 timeframe. So this was before 3G. I think the only sort of country which had wireless data really seriously was Japan at that time. Yeah, I remember the WAP protocol back in the days, uh, I think Symbian and uh, what was the other operating system, Brew? Yeah, Symbian, Qualcomm had Brew, I think Sun had J2ME. There was a, yeah, it was early days of mobile, super early days of mobile. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Amitabh, back in the days, I, if my information is correct, I think you raised a monster round, at least back in the days, like I think it was $100 million. Like what was the investment climate like? How was how were you able to raise such a big amount back in the days? I mean, you know, nowadays $100 million is like nothing burger. But back in the days, it was a big deal. You know, uh, our investors correctly believed that mobile was the next big thing back in 2000. And so 
we have never had a problem raising money. In fact, I mean, I think we could have raised $200 million if we wanted to at that time. People just wanted to give us money and we didn't know what to do with it at that time. So in a span of less than 12 months, I think we raised a Series A, Series B and Series C. And I think altogether about $100 million between the three rounds. Yeah, pretty incredible. So one of the questions, Amitabh, I had for you was every path, you know, obviously back in the days you were the innovator, early stages of the market, but didn't have the quite the outcome that, you know, really you or the investors desired. And founders often think about it is that, okay, well, you know, are they too early for the market or too late? Because innovation inherently requires you to make a bet on something that's not commonplace. What was obvious back then to you, in hindsight, what would you have done differently? I mean, you saw the mobile movement. Obviously, Apple and iPhone was not around, but you saw an opportunity. What would you have done differently? You know, I think there's nothing we could have done differently except exit faster, if you will. Yeah. But I mean, we just felt it it was the right product, just completely seven, eight years before its time. So we raised a monster round. We had six years to go find product market fit, if you will. Yeah. And we didn't. And when we finally gave up, Apple announced the iPhone six months after that, right? So those are things you can't predict. It was the right idea, just too early. And we waited for the mobile infrastructure market to appear. And it just didn't happen till the Apple iPhone happened. Yeah. And it is a bit of a cliche uh, in the Silicon Valley that follow the market, follow the tailwinds of a, of a given situation. But I think every path is a classic example where if you've got a big enough market, you'll kind of figure out a way to build the right product. Was that sort of one of your key takeaways uh, out of the entire you know, journey at every path? I think, first of all, you have to go after large markets. I think if you can find a large market, that's really interesting. But I think maybe the thing we should have learned was to see if that product market fit wasn't happening early on, recognize why, and maybe pivot more than we did. So we went from initially the, the product we were building was a platform product, which is we the best platform for you to build mobile applications, come build your favorite mobile apps. And then too late, we realized that nobody knew what apps to build. And so then we started building our own apps. But by the time we really got that, did that pivot, it was four years later and that was too late, I think. And I think there were mobile app companies, if you may, email companies that did well in that time, right? So mobile email companies. So think of it as an app where you're closer to what the end user needs. And uh, maybe that was the learning lesson, which is if you build a platform too early and nobody uses the platform, then then it's not, not good enough, right? And you've got to think about the apps people need to use. And so focus on the apps and the use cases. Sounds like you were building a marketplace when the platform infrastructure below was not even there. Was that the case? Because when iPhone came in, um, they came up with the apps in the marketplace as well, of course, the whole uh, iPhone as a platform. So there were a couple of problems before that, I think, which Apple oh. solved in a fundamental ways, right? So one was the user interface was quite bad, right? So people were trying to do data applications on top of phones, which had very small screens, pared on version of the browser, if you will. And it was just really difficult to build anything useful on that platform. That's number one. Number two, data was too expensive. It wasn't bundled into the, the platform. And when the iPhone came out, it, they actually solved all those problems together, right? I mean, if you remember, iPhone had actually a functional full browser. with You could actually build real applications on top of it, right? So the fundamental limitations of the platform, the mobile platform back in, I mean, 2001 to 2006 that Apple solved 
massively, right? And so after that, it was possible to build apps and other things on top of the platform. Yeah. You mentioned that there was an opportunity to exit early before the eight years. How did that pan out? You know, I can't describe it, but yes, there was an opportunity. And I remember one of our investors, basically, who had recently made a lot of money, told us that the exit wouldn't change his lifestyle. We should be patient and go for a bigger exit one year later, two years later. In hindsight, it would have changed our lifestyle and we didn't take the offer, actually. Uh, and that was a mistake. And did you ask your team as well? Well, that was this. that's with Workspot. So with I every see. path, we actually, we didn't even go to that stage because we all sort of, the founders rejected the offer, right? Mm-hmm. But with Workspot, yes, we had an early offer and our team, which was small and getting just getting started, really want to see how big we could make the company. And so as a team at that point, this is at the seed stage, we actually rejected the offer. Got it. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely double click on that one. Last question on every path. What was the thought process like now we need to move on? Is there an aha moment there? I think everybody was frustrated and sort of lost patience, right? Which was every year we used to say the next year is the year of mobile. And at some point, I think everybody collectively gave up and said, you know what, this isn't going to happen. And then you joined Citrix as the GM of the desktop and apps group. Uh, Citrix, for our listeners, is a desktop and app virtualization company. Uh, Amitabh, can you describe to our audience the desktop and app virtualization technology, what it does, and who are the big players in that market? Yeah, so when I joined Citrix, I actually joined the advanced products teams to build new products. And then a couple of years later, transitioned to this desktop and apps role. But when I joined Citrix, it was an app virtualization company that essentially what it did was there are apps which were really, um, like for example, the SAP app used by everybody in large organizations, but it was super difficult to install it and maintain it on people's endpoints. So it was installed, the client was installed in the data center and people pushed the bits and bytes over to people's screens so that from a central place, you could have one version of the app running and, and everybody could access it from any device they had. So I think most 60, 70% of SAP deployments back in 2008-9 were deployed on Citrix. The same thing was deployed by healthcare providers for EMR systems, um, financial services companies, right? So f- lots of these very security conscious, critical apps were deployed on Citrix uh, back in 2008 and nine, And... Customers had always been asking for apps is limited. Why why can't I get the full desktop with all the apps in it? Mm -hmm. And uh, when I switched over, we were very early on in the the life cycle of that desktop product. And that's the product I took. I joined, I I transitioned into a VP of product management role for. Uh, Thanks, Amitabh. Great insights on every path and kind of the early days of kind of the dog fight and you know sometimes you only hear success stories but sometimes you gotta there's a lot, lot of learning there about things that don't go so well but moving on to your next venture which is where you've spent uh, a lot of time many many years which is at WorkSpot. so you know you're doing desktop and application virtualization delivered as a service before we go too deep into it explain to our listener what the desktop and app virtualization technology means who are the what are the use cases? Who are the primary customers? Like, like why virtualization? I mean, I've got my laptop. I can access all my application. 
Why does it need to be streamed over the cloud from somewhere else? So explain the technology in simple terms and we can then talk about the company and what you're doing there. Yeah, so conceptually it's very simple. The way I describe it is instead of buying a physical PC or a desktop laptop from HP, Dell or Lenovo, you're buying a cloud desktop from WorkSpot. It's basically what's run, the software running inside your PC, right? So it's your Windows operating system, it's the apps inside it, it's a security stack, and all of that runs in the cloud. And the reason people do that and want to put up in the cloud is it enables you to do a few things which you can't do otherwise, right, with a physical device. So one is you have better control over the security of what's running in the Windows desktop because it's constantly connected to the network, it's constantly up to date, all the security stack is up to date. So security is probably the number one driving reason Number two is when you actually can't even give the person a physical device, right? So if you hire a con contractor, consultant, you can't really give them a physical device because it's just too painful. It's too difficult. And so if you are hiring a contractor, let's say it's, uh, it's Wipro in India, you give them a cloud desktop and they use the cloud desktop and they are operating on your assets, your IP, but it's always under your control and they use their own Wipro desktop or their their personal desktop to access the cloud desktop, right? So it's a it's a way of having very tight, secure control over your own IP while giving people inside the organization who might be remote or people outside the organization who have devices you cannot control access to your IP. Got it. And has the tech matured sufficiently where the user experiences as though the application or the desktop is running locally. Have we gotten that place or, you know, users would still feel like, oh yeah, something is getting streamed from somewhere in the cloud. And actually, so there are two things that have happened and as a result of which the performance is incredible, right? So with the public cloud, which is, if you think of Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud, or even Amazon Web Services, these guys have all installed data centers all over the world, right? So I think Azure has 50-ish, Google has 35, 40, Amazon has the same number all over the world. And so these data centers are within 15, 20 milliseconds of every human being on the planet now. That's number one. Number yep. two is most of us now have upwards of 10, 20, sometimes even hundreds of megabits per second connection up into the data center. So the two things that were always a problem, one was latency, which was when you did it on-prem, the user would be in India, the data center was in New Jersey, and the 100 millisecond latency, 200 milliseconds in latency killed performance. So now that's no longer an issue because if the user is in India, you can put their desktop in one of three, five, seven different regions in India. And two, that user has fantastic connectivity up to the desktop. So what we find actually is the performance in most cases is as good, if not in some cases better than physical PCs. So we have customers today for example, who are replacing $10,000 liquid-cooled workstations with WorkSpot cloud workstations because the performance from the cloud is actually as good, if not better, compared to that physical workstation. Got it. You started the company in 2012 where AWS were still mostly EC2 and S3 early days. Uh, did you always think about delivering this as a SaaS or that was a change that you made in the technology stack over time? Or was this always SaaS to begin with? No, we, we knew we couldn't do SaaS early on because when we were doing VDI back at Citrix, the storage was too slow. I, I think VDI killed the, the data center infrastructure, right? Because just the amount of storage performance it needed couldn't be delivered. So out of the box, we didn't try to solve for 
the cloud desktop scenario, we were trying to do a hybrid scenario where this, most of the stack lived in the cloud, but you ran the desktops on premises. And then uh, in about 2017, uh, we started working very closely with Microsoft and the Azure team because at that time, we felt like the infrastructure was ready. So in 2017, we did our first um, product release, which was cloud desktops, which was WorkSpot managing desktops running in the public cloud in Azure. And the performance was amazing. And uh, over time, we basically jettisoned our hybrid business. We still have customers running that, but 95% of our revenue now comes from the cloud desktop, and we don't even sell the hybrid product anymore. Here comes my original question. So the first three years, you had mentioned that you were building something that the customers didn't want or the, the technology stack was not ready in WorkSpot. Yeah, I think the customers didn't want. So, and this is, uh, I think, interesting, which is in at every path, we'd build something brand new and the, the world was not ready for what we'd built. In this case, the customers wanted to consume VDI, but they wanted it really simple, right? So I remember one of our early customers saying, I don't want to buy hyper-converged infrastructure and do hybrid because I'm still doing all the work. Uh, I don't want to buy Siebel. I want to buy Salesforce. So come back yeah. to me when yeah. you actually have a fully turnkey solution in the cloud because I don't want it. I want to skip over this infrastructure layer and I want to go straight all the way to the cloud. Got it. And this time, uh, was the pivot to work with Microsoft from your end or it was just the timing and everything just fell in at the right place? I think the timing fell in the right place because we had two customers essentially sell, sell us the same thing in a span of three weeks, which is why can't we do it in the public cloud? Why can't we have a turnkey solution? And And probably the last critical factor was until March of 2017, Microsoft actually did not let anybody run Windows in the public cloud. And March of 2017, they enabled the licensing to do that. And so that's when everything came together, the technology, the licensing, and we were able to bring the solution to market that from a technology perspective and a licensing perspective couldn't have been done any sooner. Got it. I think it's always key to be ready and be able to pivot because this time it seems like you pivoted and from there on it took off. I also remember you had mentioned that market always wins. So in this case, how did that statement hold? Yeah, I mean, this is that uh, Mark Andreessen statement, right? When you have team versus market question, the market always wins, right? And this was one of those instances where you could see the market shifting because in 2017, we were selling both the hybrid and the cloud desktop product, right? So if mm -hmm. You run everything in the cloud or you run some things, the desktops on-prem. And the customer feedback was 90%, I want to do everything in the cloud. I want to simplify my life. And 10% was, I want to control things. And at that point, we just decided and it, it seemed clear that we had all the technology things we needed and the market... Microsoft and Amazon and Google was not there yet at that time, right? They were spending tremendous amount of, uh, they're making tremendous amounts of investment in trying to convince customers to go to the cloud. So it just felt like the tailwinds for people to go to the cloud were being created by massive entities with massive amounts of investment. And it just made sense to follow them down that path. Got it. One of the things that I read somewhere, you kind of talk about the three different peaks in a startup journey. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, we were talking to a uh, seasoned CEO, uh, actually he's an uh, India-based entrepreneur running a multi-billion dollar company. And he goes, there are 
three orbits. Uh, you know, there's a orbit one where he has seen is that a lot of Indian startups get stuck that kind of 50, 100 people or, you know, a few hundred million dollars here and there, but not are not able to scale beyond that. Uh, describe the three different peaks uh, in the startup journey that you've, you've sort of written and talked about for, for our listeners' benefit. Yeah, I think the first peak is when you have built the product, but you have either zero or very few customers, right? So probably less than one or two million in revenue. At that point, a large strategic buyer could come in and acquire you for technology, right? That's the first peak. Um, It's almost before you can be measured on revenue, you're measured on IP. The second peak could be two years later, which is when you're at about 10 million in revenue, where you're now no longer just valued for your IP, but you're also valued for showing that people want to buy that IP, right? There's product market fit, you, if you will, at 10 million in revenue. And that's the second peak, right? And then the third peak could be another two to three years later when you're 100 million in revenue, where you can be a standalone company that can have sort of dreams of going public and so on, right? So, uh, and those are if an acquisition happens, it's a much larger acquisition at that point, right? So the universe of people acquiring people at 100 million in revenue is much lower. So and those are the three peaks, right? So, and I, at least that's, this is what described by one of our investors, our, actually our first angel investor, he described it as three, the three peaks and said, you got to time your exit to one of those peaks, which is either it's IP or it's 10 million in revenue, or then you just slog it out in the long run. Yeah. You, you obviously spent some time at Citrix and Mark Templeton was like really famous for how he ran the company and the culture. As you, you know, grow from no employees to now hundreds of employees, what are some of the key things that you have learned about retaining and hiring top talent? What have you learned over the course of building and, and scaling the company um, across these three peaks, obviously? Just Mark has just come on board as, an, as a member of our board. He's super excited to be with the company. So he said essentially a lot of the things that he talked about vision-wise, use case scenarios are now being um, made realistic with what we have built. Yep. And so he's come on board to help us, to make us bigger, to provide guidance in terms of vision as well as his support. Mark's incredible, right? And I mean, you were there for a few years at Citrix. He's just an incredible leader, right? I mean, I don't know if uh, you ever met him or not, but uh, he remembered everybody he's met, I think. I don't yeah. think, I, I, just, I don't know anybody who remembers everybody, right? Uh, <laughs> he was just incredible, right? I think there were two or three things I remember. In the early days of VDI, I remember we used to talk about unfair competition from some folks that we were competing with. And I, I remember him remarking about how Citrix would compete fairly and because we would all sleep better at night. He, I think he had incredible vision. He has the ability to see around corners is what I would I said. Yeah. Uh, because he would spot technology trends and was always aggressive and ambitious in sort of how to steer the company towards that new technology trend, right? So he jumped in wholeheartedly into the VDI game. He's the one who did the server virtualization acquisition. Netscaler, ShareFile, ZenPrize, right? Like just all those were seeing around the corner and seeing what the next technology trend would be that Citrix needed to participate in. And I haven't seen anybody with that skill, actually. Yeah, I've had a couple interactions with him. My favorite memory was uh, we had to do some UX presentation 
uh, he was big on design. So, you know, he, he had to look at like, we're launching a mobile application and, and like, you know, spend weeks and weeks on prepping. And then like the second question he asked, uh, like we're lot stumped. Like we had no idea how to answer that question and sort of, we've had so much prep time. He has had none. And how did he think about something that we, we didn't spend any time on that? So the thing is that, you know, there are people like Steve Jobs, very detailed oriented, eye for design. But then Mark also had the neck for being very personable. He didn't he didn't make us feel like shit. Like you, he always made people feel really, really good about themselves. And he was very detailed oriented. Like that was kind of his brand. What have you learned from him or, or otherwise in general about like just just getting the right people in the door and retaining them and continue to hire a talent. Any, any learnings obviously from yourself or, or from Mark that you've learned over the years? You know, I think probably the biggest learning for me was my every path experience, right? Which is being honest about why something was not working in the company, which yep. is at every path when we didn't find product market fit, I think we went through maybe three VPs of sales, two CMOs, and it was really not a marketing and a sales problem. We just didn't have a product that people wanted to buy and no amount of people turnover was going to solve the problem. And it actually extended a learning cycle, right? Because we blamed it on an individual or a, or, or a function, if you will. Yep. And maybe that was my key sort of learning out of that uh, every path experience, which is when you don't find product market fit, that's your number one goal. It's like your team can help you get there, but until you find the product market fit, don't blame the team for not finding it, right? Which is, I mean, let's, don't blame the team functionally, right? Like it's everybody's job, uh, product market and sales to go find product market fit. And so it's a, I think my only advice to people doing it now would be, you're in a very tight learning loop for the first two years, right? Because everybody in the company is trying to figure out what you are building and how you're going to sell it. And it's just a, it's a learning loop. And that's probably the biggest lesson, which is have faith in the people, right? And focus on identifying the problems you need to solve and then entrusting the people to solve that problem. You just mentioned in a tight loop for the first two years, uh, you should be figuring out what to sell and the sell build and sell framework. How can you sell something you've not built yet? Are you selling ideas then? Yeah, exactly. So this is my my first, the guy who hired me into Citrix was uh, Murli Thurumale. And he just, I mean, he he did two startups after Citrix. I think the first one, Ocarina, he sold to Dell. And the second one, Portworx to Pure Storage. And uh, Murli's mantra in life was uh, uh, sell, build, sell, which is when you're trying to build a new product, sell the product first, the idea, the vision of the product, refine that. And if people actually want to buy it, then go build it. And then if people actually buy it, then go sell, sell it again. <laughs> then, then build it and then sell it after that, right? So it was sell, build, sell. And I don't, I don't think there's any truer philosophy that, like, I, I wish we had done more of that at every path. And we try to do a little bit of that at, at, at WorkSpot. But I think that's the truest philosophy ever, which is sell the vision, people buy the vision, and then you sell the product that you built, right? <laughs> I thought I'd heard uh, all one worders and one phrasers and sentences, but uh, this is a new one. Sell, build, sell for entrepreneurs. One of the things that you face at WorkSpot is obviously partnership with obviously cloud providers, 
but there's also obviously competition, you know, Amazon virtual desktop product, and maybe it's in nascent stages right now. Same thing with Microsoft. And this is something, obviously, you know, we work at Palo Alto Networks. So this is always top of mind. Like, hey, the things that we're doing, will the CSP do it? And and to a large extent, they've started to do it. How, how do you think about these large platform providers? Do you think that fundamentally the industry is different now than it was back in the days where you could disrupt an IBM, Intel, Cisco, no big deal. But like, does it feel like these trillion plus dollars behemoths now are different and that the rate of innovation in a sort of perverse kind of way may actually slow down because these people are eating everybody else's lunch? How should people think about these big boys who can enter big markets and, and go from there? What's your take on that? You know, I, I feel actually it's easier now than before, which is when you had a dominant player in the market, it was much more difficult to execute. I mean, our experience with working with uh, multiple cloud providers has been that uh, at their primary mission is to drive cloud consumption, right? Whether you're Microsoft or Amazon or Google, you're driving cloud consumption. And if, if there is a workload that is driving cloud consumption, they will support you, right? So even if they're trying to compete with you, at the end of the day, I think yeah. all of them recognize that the customers can choose the right solution for them. And so we have found them to be incredibly supportive in terms of helping us win customers to bring to their platforms, right? And the fact that they have three humongous companies competing with each other with resources means that uh, we're not tied to any one, right? So it's it's a multi-cloud world. It's going to be for the rest of time, right? Nobody's going to have 80%, 90% market share and be that dominant that you have no other choice in the market. And and so that's one. I think and the second part of it is customers also have to look at it and say, do they want a mono-cloud solution, right? Which is if they buy a solution from the cloud vendor, they're making a very, very long-term decision not to, actually work with anything else, right? And I think increasingly in companies, like if you look at what's happening with Snowflake right now, right? Building yeah. the right solution that is multi-cloud is actually really important to customers because nobody believes that they're going to be on a single cloud forever, right? So in fact, I would say it's it's scary, but it, uh, in some ways the, the dynamics of the market are pushing people to think about multi-cloud strategies, which helps startups that embrace multi-cloud um, strategies. Yeah, yeah and, and, and not to mention that the, the way, especially like Amazon is organized and so is Microsoft, like every service is a different business. You would think that the same VDI or a past service that, you know, relies on the compute infrastructure has no unfair advantage over any other vendor because the, you know, the compute folks have to make their margins. So, so ultimately, if you build a deep tech, multi-cloud is definitely one, but if you build a tech that's that's going to be superior to what the cloud providers are providing, I mean, you know, you'll have, you'll have a big opportunity. And and you're right, Snowflake is a classic example um, of that. Yeah, and I th- I think that's increasingly going to be happening, right? Which is these yeah. uh, the cloud providers are making such large capex investments in their infrastructure that they have to drive as many uh, properties, if you will, that consume that infrastructure, right? So. Amazon has to do both Netflix and Amazon Prime, right? And I just think that's got to be everybody's game, right? Which is the customers want choices. And like, I don't think there's going to be many solutions that service 100% of the market, right? 
I mean, we'll be happy with 5-10% of the market, right? We don't need to own 100% of the market to be successful, very successful. Yeah, I, totally. and, and we see that a little bit in the security industry as well, because uh, competition is rife. But what we are seeing is this infrastructure alignment is also driving cooperation because you can only be good in one space and getting that 5% or 10% is enough, good enough. And then complement it with other technologies of which you can partner with. I think it's happening in all spaces, right? I think data warehousing and security. I, I think it's just it's just fundamentally true now because if it's going to be a multi-cloud world, there are going to be multiple players. Absolutely. So talking of security, pivoting into a, a very hot topic, which we bring up almost every other pod, uh, which is. Since SolarWinds has happened, zero trust is something which is on top of mind for security professionals along with a lot of other technologies, endpoint security, how do you do vulnerability management, but organizations are now becoming way more serious about zero trust. Can you give us your take on zero trust and how does WorkSpot tie into that? Yeah, I mean, I think what we do is fundamentally enable zero trust endpoint strategies for customers, right? And there are two different paths to zero trust for companies, right? So uh, the the full trust path, if you will, which is what people have been for the last 20 years is you have a Windows PC that's uh, is connected to the, the corporate network. If you're remote, you connect back to the corporate network using VPN. And as more and more people go remote, this structure just becomes really untenable, right? Because if you want to patch the PC, uh, you want to put security updates on the PC, the, the user needs to be connected to the network. And so that Windows endpoint becomes highly vulnerable, right? And a single unpatched PC in an organization can, can introduce ransomware, malware into the organization, and really bad things happen, right? We, I mean, everybody's seen how companies have been ransomware, very large companies even, right? And so increasingly, there's uh, companies are looking for zero trust strategies, right? Where either the endpoint doesn't need to be trusted or the endpoint is highly trusted from a security perspective, but it's not Windows, right? So for example, we have customers saying, I will let the users use their own device, uh, but they can only connect to the cloud desktop running in, in the cloud. And so all my security controls are on the cloud desktop. I don't care what the endpoint is because there's only bits, uh, streaming bits going to the endpoint. It's There's nothing, no IP going to the endpoint. The other option sort of for the endpoint is where it's an endpoint like a Chromebook where it's inherently more yeah. trustworthy, but even then you treat it like a, a thin client, if you will. Yeah. And then the third option is, I think folks like yourself at Palo Alto Networks are working on is all the network level security stuff, right? Which is uh, where... You access from the browser, security is monitored, is done in the cloud with deep packet inspection and all these other things. Uh, companies like Zscaler do this, right? And so there's two yeah. different fronts of it. One is where your Windows PC, if you will, is running in the cloud and all the security is in the cloud. And the other one is where you're actually using a browser, the network is, there is no border to the network and you're going through these cloud security technologies that Palo Alto has and Zscaler has and so on. Got it. So, you know, with that being said, do you kind of also see a play like so when you talk to customers, even at WorkSpot, like do you see a play for security for uh, technology like that? Or is it mostly about productivity and enablement for remote workers? 
or is you know do you increase are you increasingly seeing security play for technologies like desktop and app virtualization number one reason is security number ah, one reason right mm-hmm. which is wow. Yeah. I would say there's not a single large enterprise customer that we haven't talked to that wants to do this for security, wants to do work spot cloud desktops for security reasons, right? Which is every single customer wants to get to a posture where the endpoint doesn't need to be trusted. And then the IP and the trusted assets are highly controlled either in the data center or in the cloud. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, Ankur, actually, maybe zero trust is going to be that driver where virtualization and infrastructure security come together. On the endpoint side, it has been tried several times. McAfee tried it with Intel, Bromium tried it, but it was just never successful because I think it it takes the whole uh, organization to come together to make that happen. Maybe zero trust would be that. We are seeing that with some of our larger customers. We have customers who run their cloud desktops in Azure with us, and then they're sending the outbound traffic through a cloud security thing, like, for example, Zscaler. And so Mm -hmm. that seems to be a configuration people are doing. We have customers integrating security feeds from WorkSpot into Splunk. So the driving reason is, um, and the amount of data we are collecting on behalf, security events we're collecting from WorkSpot sort of all over the place, right? The endpoint, the desktop itself has grown 20x in the last two years because our customers just want more. And we collect almost, we actually are 99% of the load on our systems right now is data. It's actually not related to desktop virtualization at all. Got it. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, not to mention, it's very interesting also sort of buyer influencer journey because the budgets are coming from CISO, but then CIOs and the IT teams are implementing the technology, right? Like, so it's a pretty interesting song and dance you have to do uh, across multiple stakeholders in the company. Yeah. Is, is I mean, the CISO is a significant driving factor in many scenarios uh, or they get involved later on because uh, when people, they realize that there are desktops in the cloud and we can provide them data, they get really interested because they are all trying to correlate the data streams coming from different places and analyze it using their favorite SIM system. Yeah, totally. Amazing. Awesome. This was a fun conversation. And obviously, you know, I've spent, I mean, I've spent last decade in security, but prior to that, a whole bunch of years in virtualization. So we can riff all day long, but I know, you know, we're short on time. So I'm going to uh, move us right into our rapid fire. We've got a few questions for you, uh, Amitabh. Uh, you ready? Sure. All right. So GME and AMC are at their monthly lows. Are you thinking about getting in next week? I don't buy stocks. I'm just an index funds guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wise words. Kids out there, uh, stop following slash WSB. Uh, you know, they're just all fickle and temporary. I agree. Uh, you know, lose a lot of money. All right. Okay. Well, fine. If you're an index fund. So S&P is about 3,900 right now. Uh, what's your prediction by end of this year? You, know, you can give me percentages, whatever, whatever works. I think it probably stays within 10-15% of where we are today, up or down. I don't think it moves a lot this year because there's so much stimulus being put into the market. I just don't know whether it changes this year. All right. Amen to that. If you had to be locked in a house with one historical or current figure, who would that be for a day or a week? Historical or current figure? Yep. I think uh, it would be the the founding members of uh, the, the folks who sound... Uh, signed the Declaration of Independence is that entire team because just 
right. would have been fun to understand how they actually came up with the document they came up. It's just immensely powerful document. And it, I, I read a lot about what happened in that room and just would be fun to be in that room. Love it. Yeah. Have you heard of Clubhouse, uh, Amitabh? Just joined. I haven't done anything yet, but yeah. Okay. It seems like right. there's, a, there's an interesting conversation every day. Yeah. yeah. So do you think Clubhouse, Clubhouse is a fad or do you see it becoming a, I don't know, 10 to $100 billion company in a few years? I don't understand social media at all, but this <laughs> feels like, it feels real, right? Like, I mean, I haven't joined a single conversation yet, but uh, I think people just want more ways to connect. And this just feels more, uh, more visceral than almost anything else we have on the market right now. Yep. Book that has had the biggest impact in your life. You know, I would say the the fun, the most fun book I've read is Ben Horowitz, Hard Things About Hard Things. Yeah, that's Love probably the, the most fun I've had reading any book in the last five years. All right. And the last question for the day, Amitabh, uh, prediction for the Super Bowl tomorrow? I'm going to go against the, the common, what everybody else is predicting and say Tampa Bay in a low scoring game. All right. All right. Uh, I mean, is there even a question anymore that Brady is the GOAT, uh, maybe across all the sports? I don't think there's any question of that. I mean, I, yeah. I, my first six years in this country was watching Michael Jordan play for the Bulls. And I think yeah. that's the only person who comes even close. But I think in a team sport, physical sport like football, to go to reach the finals 50% of the time, with two different teams, that's incredible. Like I, I don't just incredible. think that anybody could do that, <laughs> ever. Yeah, he, he's a freak of nature. All right, uh, that wraps up this episode. Uh, Amitabh, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it was great having you. Thanks, Ankur. Thanks, Nilima. It was fun. Bye.